Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Millbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music was created for us by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. Today's episode is brought to you by Nukem, another quality home game from Butler Brothers. Nukem, get them before they get you. This year marks the 90th anniversary of Universal releasing both Dracula and Frankenstein, kicking off a franchise of monster movies that is still going today. We can think of no better way to celebrate than with today's guest. He's been acting since 1961 and has been directed by or shared the small and big screen alike with both Hollywood legends and cult movie staples. Names like Herschel Gordon Lewis, William Asher, Walter Brennan, Roy Frumkes, Paul Lynn, Richard Crenna, Two crew members of the Nostromo, Veronica Cartwright and Tom Skerritt, Louis Nye, Joe Besser, Smokey Miles, Linnea Quigley, Rudy Ray Moore, Chip Chandler, Robert Zadar, Chuck Phone, yeah, Chuck Jones, I'll fix that in post. No, I won't. John Cassavetes, Mandy Moore, Sal Lizard, John Carradine, Ann Sheridan, Fred Williamson, Charles Nelson Riley, Gunnar Hansen, Harvey Corman, Sid and Marty Croft, Kim Hunter, Buddy Epson, Brink Stevens, Lloyd Kaufman, Wally Cox, Fred McMurray, Billy Hayes, Jerry Marin, Hans Connery, voiceover legends Dawes Butler, Thurl Ravenscroft, June Foray, and Mel Blank, as well as Davy Jones, Mickey Dolans, Michael Nesmith, and Peter Cork, better known as the Monkees. Oh yeah, and some guy named Clint Eastwood. In 1964, he scored the role he is best known for playing, Eddie Munster in The Munsters, a TV series that had only two seasons and 72 episodes, yet it has endured for almost five decades and entertained millions of people around the world. A show that has spawned numerous reboots and feature film adaptations, with Rob Zombie now taking the helm with his own take on America's favorite family of normal misfits. Please welcome the man who played the kid we all grew up wanting to be, Butch Patrick. Well, man, thank you very much, but my time is up. I, go. <laughs> I stole this format directly from Gilbert's podcast. So oh. <laughs> I owe Frank Santo Padre for this. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very, it's, thank you very much. I sometimes I even uh, kind of take a step back and, and have to, you know, kind of slap myself the Make sure that I'm still uh, not not dreaming that how many great people I had the chance to work with and and get to interact with during my life. I'm very blessed. It, absolutely, it's a laundry list of great names there, and that's just a handful. Um, I actually cut down quite a bit. I just started making the list. I'm like, I can't read all these. Oh no, please, <laughs> please. It's, a, it's a half hour show. <laughs> so. I, we'll go back a little bit. I, of course, everybody knows, yeah, you were Eddie Munster, but let's go back before that. You were living in Illinois. And yes. what, what part of Illinois were you in? I was, it was a little town called Geneseo. And, and how that came about is I grew up in Los Angeles and my grandmother um, wanted to get away from her kids would move out of the house. So she packed up her stuff and moved back to Illinois where she grew up as a little girl and she always liked this little, very much like Main Street USA. She loved antiques. So she went back to this little town called Geneseo. I have um, to cut in. I've actually been there several times with my old job. We lived right on Main Street. She had a little apartment above a store, you know, with a lot of the mm -hmm. old days when they would have like a, a retail store or, or a department store, there'd be apartments upstairs. So I lived upstairs with her. And what happened was um, I started acting when I was seven but I moved back to live with her in the fifth grade. So 
that is how I was, that's where I happened to be living during the Munsters. But prior to that, I had worked quite a bit before I actually accompanied grandma to uh, Illinois. Right. So you had done some stints on um, General Hospital, a few other first shows. Ep- like the that. first episode ever of General Hospital. That was, I didn't pick up on that until a little bit later in life. I go, you know, that's pretty impressive to be on the first episode. I did several episodes, but I was on the first premiere episode of, uh, of General Hospital. That's quite a milestone. That really is. Wow. So what was it like? Soap operas were so new in that time. What did it feel like? It was very, it was very good training because it was the closest thing to theater that you would find uh, in a soundstage. What they would do is they would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse all morning. And then after lunch, they would go to tape and it was live. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, the cameras, there was a lot of there was a lot of technical dancing behind the scenes of the cameras being pulled from one scene to another and everything flowing smoothly. So that's what I kind of got. I thought it was very interesting to see how this whole big dance was going on to make sure everybody got to the right set with the right camera and the right camera angle. And then the secondary thing was not, you know, not flubbing your lines and they had teleprompters everywhere. I'm sure it was kind of a good way to learn running on your feet with all of this being thrown at you, especially at that age? The, 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 the knowledge that I got was mostly technical because they really didn't give me a whole lot of dialogue. It was pretty easy for me. I, it, back then, kids were very much like a, to set up a scene of where, where is Dr. Hardy? Oh, he took Tommy to the ball game. And then you would walk in with a, with a baseball glove and a pennant. And then they would say, oh, thank you, Dr. Hardy. And then you would walk off and you would pretty much be done for your job to bring that scene to this scene. And then it was like a handoff. So when you've got that downtime, you're in a studio, what was that like just being a kid in a big candy store like that? The key for me was I was always wise beyond my years. I was told I was fairly an old soul. You know, I was good with math and flashcards and spelling and reading. And, you know, so I, I was I was mentally a little bit further along in my years than I looked, but I looked younger than I actually was. So I had the best of both worlds because they love it when you could play eight or nine, but you're actually 11 or 12, which was the Munsters. Mm-hmm. And then the idea that you can actually memorize dialogue and hit your mark and not be a liability to making a mistake. They really like that. Yeah. So I, uh, I, you know, I was always very comfortable being around adults and the fact that I didn't have to, not that I dislike school, but I found it to be more interesting to do that than to just go to second grade and, sure. um, Go, go 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 see Mrs. Bunch, who I adored, but it was more fun to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever like hang out at the commissary and get to see some of those people wandering through? The exciting thing for most kids and actors is going maybe to the commissary because literally you're either in school, which is the three hour mandatory thing, which takes up most of your, you know, if you had any extra time, you pretty much wind up going to school to fill it. But yes, the commissary was always a good place because that's where everybody pretty much went to lunch at the same time on the, on, on the studio. So that's where you would see the likes of, you know, Charlton Heston and, or, you know, once in a while, if you're working with somebody like, you know, Walt Edward G. Robinson was my, uh, my grandfather on the detective. So there's mm-hmm. Rod Taylor and there's Edward G. Robinson. And, you know, you, you know, you would do a scene with him that he invites you over to sit with him. And, you know, the older actors, I think they, they took us a little bit of a, a little bit of an, an extra amount of time to know that a kid was out of his element and he was the only kid there. And they would sort of 
go the extra mile to try to make you feel a little more non-isolated. That's good to know. That's very nice. Yeah. Did you, it, I'm sure it's looking back now, you're like, wow, I was with these icons. Were you able at that age to kind of appreciate or did you even, were they just co-workers? Pretty much co-workers. Um, it was, it was interesting. You know, you would drive, we lived quite a bit, of, we, we lived like 30 miles from the studio. So there would be this ride, you get up in the morning, you need cereal, hot chocolate, whatever. And during the ride to work, you, I would be looking at my script. I would rehearse it the night before with my mom, but you know, I would brush up on it a little bit. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that was, that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing was prepping for um, dialogue the next day. Yeah. But having, once you arrive, you have a half an hour of, from your front door to the studio gate. And in that half hour window, you sort of prep, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, maybe an athlete in the dugout, you know, and then mm -hmm. in the clubhouse prepping for the game. And you have this little window of opportunity. And then once you walk on the studio gates, you pretty much leave everything behind you. And right. you walk into this business world, which it is a big business. And these giant buildings and these really cool, you know, you walk in and you see magic being built and stuff. And, and you sort of like, you know, you feel like, well, this is, this is special because you know, the average person just can't walk in there. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally getting a drive on pass for an interview is a big thing, but imagine getting a series to where the, the, the front gate security guards, your best buddy and waves you in. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a neat feeling. And then the fact that while you're there, you see a lot of, um, you know, people, it, it, I used to explain to people that, what was it like to be on TV? And I said, you know, you see the end result of this beautifully manicured, well edited, you know, hours of preparation for a few seconds and what you see. I go, if you were on my side of it, you literally, if you, if the TV screen was another six inches wider, you'd see a guy in a t-shirt with a coffee cup, you know, <laughs> leaning against the boom mic, you know, smoking a cigarette. And you know, <laughs> it's like, the magic is gone. It's like literally <laughs> the magic, you see the magic we see, a job right the real mccoys you were on that kind of toward the end of the series and it looks like you probably spent a lot of your time with richard krenna yeah that... the way that was structured is the real mccoys had gone off the air and another network picked it up for a year and they came back without the whole the full family they only had the three guys three amigos they had uh, luke uh papina and uh, amos so they lost Kath, they lost Sugar Babe, Little Luke, and Cassie. So they didn't really have a love interest for Luke. And they decided that they had a woman next door uh, inherit the farm next door, a widow, mm -hmm. which I was her son. And to interact with Louise, uh, I think that was her name. If not, Janet DeGore was her name, but I think it was Louise. So anyway, I was the kid next door who would ride my pony over to the McCoy farm. And that was how they would bring Luke to meet Louise and I, I would be get lost and he would go find me and he would take <laughs> me fishing. And so it was actually a pretty cool little gig. It was only eight episodes, but um, it was when I did do the episodes, I was in it a lot. And the fact that my mom explained to me who Walter Brennan was yeah. and how, how, how powerful in Hollywood and how influential this guy was in a three, you know, triple Academy award winner, you know, back to back mm -hmm. to back for, you know, for um, supporting actors. That was interesting, but I knew Richard Crenna from Artemis Brooks. Oh yeah. Yeah. So to me, I thought it was funny that he didn't have that squeaky little voice <laughs> that he had on Artemis Brooks and he wasn't that, that geeky, you know, kind of character. Kind of, he still had a little bit of it. Yeah. You know, they had Luke, they had Luke be a very likable kind of a, 
play off of Amos McCoy, but it was a very popular show and it, and it was, and it was a good year to learn a lot of stuff. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. And your uncle was a jockey. It was your uncle, right? Yeah. In yeah. my family, my mom's side, my uncle on my mother's side uh, was a jockey at Hollywood park. He grew up with Lee Shoemaker and he was doing very well, but he grew, he hit a, he had a growth, growth spurt and actually grew out of his job. So, but I spent a lot of time at Hollywood Park with Woody at 4.35 in the morning when he would go exercise horses. I would go along and he would pop me up by the rail and I would get to watch the horses come by in the, in the morning mist. And so I, I, I learned how to ride a horse very early. Mm-hmm. And then my other uncle, uh, my, my mom married Dave Lilly and his brother supplied horses to the studio and lived out in Newhall and had a bunch of Western props. So I was around horses a lot. And then and a third uncle that married my aunt was a, was a horse trainer. Okay. So riding a horse came in really, really handy. Not only did I enjoy it just for fun, but it came in handy doing Westerns. Yeah. And I, I remember you saying in an interview that helped you get the real McCoys. Yeah, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. Yeah. The riding the pony and being, and being able to ride a horse and being comfortable around that kind of a thing in a ranch in a ranch thing. Yeah, I believe so. Um, also, the, the fact that uh, you got it always goes back to the fact that I was I was younger than I looked and I could act older than I was. And it really helped in interviews and stuff. So yeah. I used to get a lot. I had a pretty good batting average in interviews. I probably got over half the interviews I went on, nice. which is pretty good because, like, you know, you hear these stories about, oh, my God, I've been on 40 interviews. And I haven't gotten a job yet. Right. And I got very lucky that sometimes I would have two or three interviews a day. And come home with you know two out of three like you know batting you know going to going to a baseball game and doing really well. So I didn't go on a lot of interviews, but the ones I went on, I did pretty well. That's really good averages, mm-hmm. yeah. And when you got started, you went you were just going with your mom and sister when they were meeting with an agent, and they ended up taking some pictures of you, liking your look, and promoting mm-hmm. you. How did your sister take that? Oh, she she's fine. Yeah, she's two. She was two years old. She oh, okay. she actually came out one day, and they and they wanted. I I was working on a thing called the Time of the Tonsils, which was an alcohol premiere with Eddie Albert, who I did my first job with. Eddie Albert. So mm-hmm. here he's my dad again, a couple of years later. And Mary finagled a little extra part for my little sister to be in the scene with me, and she wouldn't cooperate. No, I don't want to do it. And like, Honey, stand up and stop. No, I don't want to do it. So they got really frustrated with her and told her that, no, uh, this isn't going to work out. So, you know, take the little, little expletive home. <laughs> and um, what she did was so funny is right when, after she blew that one, then the, uh, they came to get her and as she's leaving, they're filming and right as she's leaving in the middle of the shot, she screams, goodbye, bud! <laughs> and stopped the tape and we had to take another tape and they said, get her out of here. <laughs> Now, in her defense, she's a child, very young, sure. and she actually did go on to work later on in life. Very pretty girl. She did some eight, some eight is enough, and mm-hmm. some movies. And uh, but yeah, the uh, as a little girl, she would have none of it. Right. <laughs> what are your memories of Eddie Elbert? He was such a great character actor. Shows up in so many things. What are your memories of him? Who is this? A- Eddie Albert. Oh, Eddie Albert. Yeah. The, the best thing I remember of Eddie Albert, I mean, he was, he was just really great. I loved him a lot. But uh, he had a very cool 60 Porsche, the silver little 356 single girl Porsche. And he, he I think he liked my mom because he <laughs> always pick, picked us up and drove us to the commissary, you know, 
So nice. uh, that was little, so I could sit in the back seat. You know, it was a little tiny back seat of Porsches. Mm-hmm. But I always thought that silver with red interior Porsche was very, very cool. And he was really nice. Cool. I know you're a bit of a gearhead. We'll get to that in a little bit. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Um, I have to ask, you were in a movie called Hand of Death. Uh, oh, as, a, as a cult movie collective yeah. here, that's one of our favorites. Uh, Joe Besser was in that. I don't think you guys scared any, shared any screen time, but did you get to interact with him at all? No, no, that was just, I was only that one scene, you know, where mm-hmm. I'm on the beach and I'm you know, jumping on the rocks. I didn't even have a speaking part, yeah. but they put me on the poster, you know, a little boy <laughs> on the poster and uh, John Agar, they actually had John Agar playing the monster instead of a, a double. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was down at Santa Monica, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and it, it was, it was just, a, it was a fun deal. It was, it was like a little low budget movie, but John Agar mm-hmm. was a pretty big star Yeah, and the rest of the cast wasn't bad. So, um, it was no, I never. You were, you were asking about Joey Besser, right? Yeah, yeah, but there yeah, were no, a I, lot of good I did, names I did in that have cast. A chance to work with him, though. He was at the, he was at the gas station. Yeah, that's right. He was the gas station attendant. That so in a movie like that, did you go to those premieres? No. Oh, okay. No, the old days of Hollywood. Uh, kids literally. You know, you didn't do talk shows. You weren't invited on the Tonight Show. You weren't on game shows. You didn't go to premieres. You didn't do press junkets. It was just a different world. Yeah. And then, the, and, the, and the kids were really. That was one of the things. I think that was one of the things about being a kid actor back in the day was that it was good and bad. It was good because I didn't really want to go to those premieres. I mean, I was I, I I did my job and I couldn't wait to get home. So when they wrote me out of a scene, I was happy because it made my day shorter. Where today it's like, oh my God, you, know, you want more scene time, and you want more dialogue, and you want more screen. You know, you're fighting for screen time. And me, it's like, hey, I'm out of a, I'm out of a scene. Yay, yay! You know, I check this. I, w- I would look at the call sheet and, and say, oh my God, I'm going to be getting off today early. And as soon as I did my last scene, I, I would know that I had three hours. I could get out of here, and I would go to the assistant director and ask him, can I please go home now? You know, I'm done. Um, <laughs> Now, as an adult, you go to the, you know, you're on for the whole day and you, you just accept that you're going to be there till the end of the day. But as a kid, you know, you want right. to go play softball and you want to get home before the traffic and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get that a lot. Um, you always hear the story of child actors losing their childhood. Yeah. And that can lead to, of course, problems we all know about. But um, for you, obviously being able to, living closer to the studio than most people and things like that, being able to take advantage of that time off and be able to go out and be a bit of a kid. Did that, was that an advantage for you? Let's analyze that statement. Okay. Losing your childhood. <laughs> uh, you're, you're a child. I mean, if, if you just woke up one day and you went to sleep at three and you woke up at 19, okay, mm-hmm. there's 16 years missing of your childhood or you went into a coma or you were abducted by aliens. I get mm-hmm. that. And not even if you're about talking about aliens, it would, your childhood would just be spent in space. So, um, no, you don't lose your childhood. Your childhood just takes on a different dimension. Some kids are really analytical and they're very adult-like and they're very responsible and they're very structured and, and that's just the way they are. That's, and their childhood just, you know, kind of represents that. Usually they go on to be really super successful, you know, because they just, you know, they just had focus on stuff. Other kids, uh, me, I was having a great time. It just happened to be my childhood. I wrapped my childhood around, okay, this is something. I'm still a kid. I'm still running around. I'm doing kid stuff. 
But instead of exploring the construction site down the street, I'm exploring the soundstage mm-hmm. with those guys hammering nails. So everything was just, I still had a very much of a childhood with some responsible work in between. Um, so yeah, for me, I never, they asked what, you know, what, what was it like? Have you ever thought about being under Eddie Munster or what's it like to be famous? And I go, well, you know, honestly, I've never really not been in this position. So I just, I don't know, but I'm, I'm sure I would have been okay with it. I was thinking about being an architect. Um, I was good at drafting. I was good at sketching. I wasn't good at, you know, like caricatures, but I was good at angles and squares and mm-hmm. stuff that would an architect would do. But I don't, you know, I don't ever really think much about it. I would have loved to have been a race car driver, but unfortunately, after the movie business was over and the 60s and 70s were there, I, I chose to spend my days surfing and uh, smoking weed and doing mm-hmm. all the things that we did back in the, uh, the summer of love and <laughs> stuff like that, because that was what, the, that's how the country was and that's where things were back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The child, a, but back to the childhood thing, one of the yeah. things about the movie business is, well, the one key thing that a lot of people don't wrap their mind around with when you're a kid actor is it's not so much you going to the studio. The big change is what happens with the rest of the family back at the house by you being in the movies. The household has to change gears and they have to adapt to what you're doing. And that's where a lot of resentment and a lot of issues come into play is what happens to the family unit because one kid out of three has to take one of the parents to the studio every day and it disrupts the home life. Oh, yeah. That I've never considered that. But that's, yeah, I that's, imagine that's... That's the key. That's where most of the problems come from. Yeah. And, and is that something you ended up struggling with then later in no, life? No, oh, no, oh, okay. no. I, I didn't yeah. at all. And that was, but I, I know other situations where that is, uh, no, we were, we had a very unique situation. We had a next door neighbor who loved my little brothers and I had a younger sister who took care of them. Mom usually took me to work when, when mom wasn't around and she was living on the East coast. I lived with my uncle and we hired a woman to take me to work. There's a way to do it, but I could see how I know from a fact, a lot of other situations presented problems between number one, parents living vicariously through their kids yeah. is, a, is a problem. Number two, one kid, one parent stays home. The other kids get less attention. They get a little resentment, a little jealousy factor comes into play. So there's just a lot of things. And then a lot of it in the modern day issues. Now the money comes into play because there's so much money at stake. Yeah. Back then the money wasn't really that big of a deal. I made more money than my stepdad who played pro baseball, but it was still in the mid $30,000 range. You know, nobody was yeah. getting rich and he had, you know, most ball players in the old days had a, had an off season job. Mm-hmm. To supplement the income. I mean, it, it just, the money factor didn't come into play at all, which today is the the Macaulay Culkin type problems and, and the right. Britney Spears problems mm-hmm. that come into play that we didn't even have to deal with that. That was yeah. a whole other uh, world. What what team did your stepfather play for? He came up to the Yankees. Him and Roger Maris were both North Dakota farm boys that made it into the Yankee organization. Yeah, he was he was Mickey Mantle's roommate. And as a rookie, and they were grooming him to replace Mickey Mantle. He went to the Angels in the expansion in 1961. You can only protect so many good players. And he wound up staying with the Angels when my mom married him. And then he was traded to the Washington Senators. He had dislocated his shoulder, and he was a center fielder. So his throwing arm was not what it used to be. And they tried to move him to first base. Mm-hmm. But anybody that knows baseball, if you're an outfielder, the infield isn't where you want to be. And they wanted his bat, but he never really recovered from the injury. So he only played five years. 
and he wound up. But during that five years, it was my, I was a kid. I'm playing in the father and son games. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was how I wound up living with my grandma when they went to the East Coast. And then the Munsters came along, which brought me back to the West Coast for two years. Mm -hmm. And then when the Munsters was over, grandma had moved to Illinois, to Macon, Missouri. And then I moved back to visit her for the eighth grade. So I spent a lot of time with my grandma. Yeah. Was that at least kind of cool knowing you've got this stepdad who's out playing in the majors? Oh, yeah. It was, it was yeah. very cool because when I wasn't, I mean, I mean, look at this. You either go to the studio and have fun or you go to the ballpark. Go to the ballpark. Shag yeah. flies. And, and you know, ball players like to bust your chops. So they're always making fun of Kenny because he wasn't starting and they would like, you know, splinters on his butt. Oh, don't worry about it, hun. Your kid's in the movies. You'll be fine. You know, so that didn't fly very well. But, but Kenny, you know, and then you, know, you could only go in the clubhouse when the team won. But unfortunately, they were with, I was, you know, he was with the Washington Senators. So they didn't win a whole lot. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time outside throwing, throwing pop flies to myself, waiting for him to come to the car. <laughs> But I, I loved it, though. I mean, literally, yeah. I loved it. I, I went to the ballpark early and being in the father and son game. It, it was great stuff. That, you know, you think about, we all have these preconceived notions. Obviously, the question I ask of what it's like to be a child star, because the ones we hear about are the Lace Garretts and the Danny Bonaducci's, things like that. Hearing stories like from you where, still a relatively normal childhood your job was just something a little different than what other kids were doing it's refreshing to hear but also just a good perspective I think for our listeners to have well you got to understand it's a business and from that business publicity comes and and publicity sells what kind of publicity sells do you want to hear another great story about how great Ronnie Howard's doing or do you want to hear a negative story about how right. badly Bonaducci and he won. And actually, Danny is not a good example. He had problems, but he wound up on top. Yeah. He's a very successful radio DJ. Yeah. He always has been. Mm -hmm. He just had some demons that he had to deal with. Uh, Leaf Garrett, you know, I feel sorry for Leaf. He, uh, he, he had a situation where his little sister, Dawn Lynn, yeah. was on My Three Sons when I was on My Three Sons. And I did eight My Three Sons. So I saw firsthand Dawn and Leaf's mom a lot. And mm -hmm. she was gorgeous. I mean, she was really a gorgeous woman. She came on the set, but there was, you could sense that there was, um, you know, it, it was, it was kind of like two kids in the business and who's getting the attention and, and Don's such a sweetie and, and, and leave kind of, you know, I, I learned not that I will share here, but I learned a lot what was going on from Don behind the scenes. Cause we were friends and I'd go over to Catalina and visit her, but um, literally it's, there's so many successful stories of people in Hollywood. Bill Movie is a huge success and a wonderful, wonderful uh, family man and kids and grandkids and the same house that he bought 45 years ago. But that doesn't sell papers. Right. That doesn't make it into tabloids. They want they want crap. They want dirt. Yeah. And literally in Hollywood, there's enough of it around. And if you dig deep enough into anybody's life, you'll find something. But it just so happens because you've been on television, it makes it newsworthy to ragbags. Sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. That's very oh, nice yeah. to hear. Well, that's yeah. part that's part of my sobriety. You know, I mm -hmm. I, I partied for forty one years. I went to school with the cow sills and and a oh, bunch wow. of other celebrities. Huh? <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. I wow. met Barry Cowsill or Hellraisers in the, in in the Hollywood yeah. professional school. We uh we just had a great time. Paul was the senior. I was a junior. Barry was a junior. John was a freshman, and Susan was in the sixth grade. But we uh, we had a great time in this little professional school in Hollywood that 
catered to Hollywood kids that couldn't go back into public school because they were absent too, absent too much working. But you talk about a fun time and a wild time to be around Hollywood. You know, I mean, I just saw Alice Cooper the other day and, you know, I saw oh, yeah. him in his first, and my first concert was Jimi Hendrix. And then my second one was Alice Cooper back in 71. And I go, Oh my God, this guy's hanging himself and he's got these big snakes and right. <laughs> you know, and here he is, you know, damn near 50 years later doing it well still. And, and he's the nicest, kindest, you know, regular guy in the world. And, but and he's got sobriety, big sobriety mm -hmm. as well. So I only got like, I've come up on 11 years, right? I for 40, but for 41 years, I was wide open, full throttle partying and uh, I was lucky to survive. Yeah. But that's why I don't mind talking about it because that's part of the process. Yeah. Congratulations on that. I was yeah. going to talk about that a little later. I, I, um, cool. I re-listened to your interview from uh, Gilbert's podcast. <laughs> and I think at that point you were three and a half years. So I yeah. did the math there and I'm like, wow, he's coming up on over a decade. So that's great. Yeah. Well, um, we, we've got to talk about the Munsters a little bit, of course. Um, I know you've you've sure. mentioned your favorite episodes, Eddie's nickname and Zombo. Um, and for both of those, I, the reason you mentioned them for Eddie's nickname, Paul Lind, I have yeah. to ask about your memories of him. Well, he, it was just a funny, a very funny scene. You know, Dr. Dudley, the family doctor, he it was it was a funny character and it was always a very funny read in, in the office and you knew it was going to be funny because he couldn't see and you know herman would go into the office right. and say hey i told you about your little doggy leave your doggy outside you know patting his hairy hand but the the idea of first of all the idea of how tv used to be where you could pull a drawer open and you could be a neurotic nervous doctor and take a handful of tranquilizers to, to prepare for Mr. Munster. And then there's that's Mr. Munster and son. And he goes, oh my goodness, Mr. Munster had the guts to have a son. And then they peek open and they see me with a paper bag over my head and takes four tranquilizers because it's gotta be really bad. So that kind of humor, you know, it was so much fun. It was so simple and it was so effective. But that particular Dr. Dudley scene is uh, is one of my favorites because it just looked funny to have an 11 year old kid with his huge beard. Right. Um, and that was fun. And then the funny part about that episode is the scene afterwards where my where my um, beard disappears is like been downloaded hundreds of millions of times about Herman talking about the how to don't judge a book by its cover. It doesn't matter what you look like, you know, the size of your heart, strength of your character, which resonates you know today like oh nobody's business this is like something that and i get calls on that all the time from people say hey how do you feel about this and that i go you know it was just it's it's it rings the same then as it does now you know just i wish more people would you know believe it no no shit i don't know if you can see just you mentioning it i have goosebumps <laughs> it's such yeah. an effective beautiful scene fred gwynn <laughs> delivers it with so much sincerity. Yep. It's, it's a and, and beautiful grandpa, moment. And grandpa, who always, always gave him a hard time, says, finishes it off and says, Herman, you ain't perfect, but you're all right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the best you're going to get out of grandpa. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, and, that was a good one. And then Zombo, uh, I really enjoyed Zombo because Louie and I, uh, yeah. and that resonates today, but, you know, horror host on TV. Mm -hmm. We always had them, you know, no matter yeah. where you grew up, there was some guy in some marketplace and some were famous, some were not so famous, some were national, but there was always a Saturday night, Friday night horror host guy for young kids to watch monster movies. 
And, uh, and Zombo was perfect. And, you know, the fact that in our household, I thought he was real. Yeah. You know, ours was Sammy Terry. That was his name. And you had been doing some horror hosting yourself with uh, Macabre Movies. Yeah. Uh, if I, a long time ago, about 20 years ago, I was in Orlando and I just mentioned to someone, I says, you know, if you ever want to do a really easy show, just, you know, 1313 Theater, we just recreate the Munster's living room and we come in and we host, you know, what we consider to be home movies, which are literally monster movies, just like we did in the, in the Munsters. Yeah. And um, so from that idea, we came up with Macabre Theater because Natalie, uh, I bought a cadaver, Natalie mm-hmm. Popovich, the actress and a friend of mine, uh, we were doing it without her. She was the producer and it didn't work out with the, uh, the girl that we had pegged to be the uh, co-host. And I was actually going to be the host. We had this blonde co-host and, it, and she wasn't, it wasn't working. So what we did is I, Natalie stepped in and said, well, I'll do it. So she did. And then I, I noticed, I go, this would be better with her as the host and I'll be the sidekick, which is really, I didn't have this back again, less work for me. I'm okay with this. I, you know, my ego's fine. I'll be happy to step back and do less. Still, you know, I mean, literally the paycheck would still be the same and it's, mm-hmm. it's not like I'm losing anything. So it shifted gears to Macabre Theater with Ivana Cadaver as your host. And we've got, over the years, it's been on several markets. Right now it's on YTA, which is um, the um, Mark, um, oh God, what's his name? The, the, uh, anyway, I'll try, it'll come to me, but it's uh, the guy that created Survivor and Shark Tank. Uh, oh, Mark Burnett. Yeah, Mark Burnett. Mark Burnett's <laughs> channel. And we're going to, uh, we have 62 episodes in the can that we kind of rotate through. We're going to pretty much bring it up to speed and redo it new in real time and then refer back to the old ones as like home movies that we're sort of reminiscing about. And that way the budget will come up. To, instead of public domain movies, we'll have a little bit more money to up the ante a tad. But yes, we do a, a monster movie um, hosting show called Macabre Theater. And uh, for our listeners, you can find those on Facebook. Uh, Macabre Theater's on there. They have a page. Yeah. Check it out. It's a lot of fun. Um, going back to the Munsters a little bit. Now, Billy Moomy was originally offered the role of Eddie, but his mom didn't want him in the makeup. Is that right? That's as I understand it, yes. Okay. So he went on to do Lost in Space, and then you took over on Eddie Munster's role. It's interesting how the Munsters came about because it's sort of like it was apparently it was meant to be. Number one, I'm in Illinois and I'm not even in Hollywood. So number one. Number two, they offered to actually number one, they offered to build a movie. That's mm-hmm. first. He turns it down. Number two, they then go on a casting call and they wind up with a pilot for the networks featuring uh, the, the Herman Grandpa and Lily, but they have excuse me, uh, Herman Grandpa and Marilyn, but the Lily character is called Phoebe. And her name is Joan Marshall, and it's very similar to Morticia Adams with very long, straight black hair, kind of like Cher hair. Mm-hmm. So the networks see the pilot. They go, we want the pilot, but we want it without her. She looks too much like Morticia, and we're not happy with Happy Derman. Happy, we're not happy. <laughs> and we need another Eddie um, for whatever reason. So whether mm-hmm. he was directed that way, I'm sure he was probably doing what they requested, but the networks right. weren't happy with happy. So Yvonne DiCarlo comes into play because she, uh, her husband had been hurt financially. She was strapped because yeah. of the medical bills. Right. So she took on a role in television way before it was cool for movie stars to be TV stars. 
So she kind of went down and sort of stepped back into television for finances, which is fine. Mm -hmm. And my agent caught wind of it and convinced them that they needed to fly me out because I would be the perfect Eddie that they were looking for. So a good agent, circumstances with Happy, Bill Mooney turning it down, all of these came into play and the network brass not liking it. So there's four big things that had to line up to allow me to be Eddie Munster. Not to mention that my family was still living in the East Coast and I had to live with my uncle and hire a woman to take me to work. And all those things continued to happen uh, for two years, but I guess it was meant to be. Obviously. And it worked out well for you. 72 episodes and they 70, zero. 70. Oh, okay. Um, They've just lived on so long. And of course a feature film that followed that. Um, Of course, my big question, the bicycle, the chain link bicycle. Did you get to, did you get to keep that? No, uh, it was never okay. on. It was never on screen. It was yeah. brought out for a publicity shot. I sat on it, and then what happened was the gentleman that bought my Wolf Wolf doll years and years and years ago had that bike. Oh, wow. and I bought it from him about eight years, seven or eight years ago, as part of the package deal. But what happened was I was carrying that bike around in my trailer with my Munster coach and my Dragula. Mm-hmm. And every time I would lift it off and bring it down, something would fall off because it was so oh. fragile. Yeah, and it was so heavy. It weighed a ton. I mean, it was yeah. like my workout. I didn't need a gym. All I had to do was do curls with this damn stingray. <laughs> so a guy with a, with, in Louisiana contacted me. And he goes, look, he goes, um, I got a George Barris Museum wing in my museum, and I really would like that bicycle. Oh, wow. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. I says, you know, it probably would get to have a better home there. More people would see it. Mm-hmm. It would probably stay in better shape. So he, he threw some stupid money at me. Yeah. And in addition to the fact that it was taking a beating, I decided to sell it to him. And I now in hindsight, I wished I hadn't, yeah. but I did. So yeah. that's where it's at. Okay. I had to ask. I've seen that photo so many times. It's such a cool bike. Um, and I got to ask about Al Lewis. He's such a character. He and uh, Fred Gwynn work so well off each other, just that back and forth they would have. And Al Lewis himself, um, you know, living in New York, he was such a character there. People mm-hmm. in his his restaurant, <laughs> they'd come see. Um, and of course, hang, he'd hang out with Al Goldstein, but he was also a basketball scout. Did so much about him, people didn't know. What are your remembrances of him? Well, you know, Fred and I, we, I mean, I worked with Al, but Fred and I seem to have the more father and son scenes. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot of acting techniques from Fred. And that was a good thing. But Al was, uh, had a little bit more free time and he and I would spend a little more time outdoors and tossing a Frisbee or talking sports. They, they liked the idea that my dad was a pro ball player. They were both sports fans, yeah. New Yorkers go, you know, go figure. And, um, so I learned a little bit of everything from, uh, from individually. They were both great guys, but they had different views on the world. Mm-hmm. Al was like vaudeville and circus folk. Fred was like blue blood, Harvard and Broadway. Right. So, but together they, you know, opposites attract and they complemented each other really well. So I was very lucky to be in the middle of that. And, um, but Al is a, when, when I would go visit him, like at, at his restaurant opening and we did some personal appearances together, a lot uh-huh. of personal appearances together because he embraced the grandpa monster or Fred, yeah, yeah. you know, distance, distance it. So when Al, uh, I, I recruited Al to help me do something with Eddie and the Monsters in 82, because I was on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, I, I was on the East Coast doing something. He was on the West Coast at the time. And he introduced the band at the Palladium for the rock video 
while I was on the East Coast doing a tour. And one thing led to another. We became friends as adults then. As a, mm-hmm. Although he still treated me like I was nine years old, but we were, <laughs> I was now 30. And we then started doing personal appearances together. And then we recruited Pat Priest in to come into the mix as well. Right. So the three of us, we would probably do you know, at least one a year, maybe two or three. But Al and I did a lot of stuff together. Uh, yeah, we did spring break with Budweiser in 1990. <laughs> Uh, that was that notorious stuff. plane ride, right? Do what? The notorious plane ride. The plane ride to to uh, when you were heading to spring break, was it? A, for, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I got too, got too drunk in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I thought they were moving to first class. They're throwing me off the plane, but they didn't. It was, you know, it was, it was. I was amazed at how much I. Uh, you know how much I could uh, handle back then. It was crazy, and uh, so yeah. yeah, that was that was the the, <laughs> the dark days. But yes, uh, we worked a lot together, and uh, they were great guys. I learned a ton from them. Mm-hmm. And you know, having these TV parents of Yvonne DiCarlo and Fred Gwynn, did you get to interact with them much on uh, off scene? I kind of get no. the feeling Yvonne probably disappeared into her dressing room a lot. <laughs> She did pretty much. No, we did. Yeah. Uh, it was, and, 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 and it wasn't so much that I always went straight, straight from the set to school. Right. I had other obligations. I always yeah. had to be somewhere else. So I wasn't like I had the free time to go lean up against the coffee cart or, you know, or go out to the roach coach or, you know, that wasn't part of the mix that the kid had to be in school. Yeah. Well, I mean, You've talked about the monsters for 50 years, so people can find other things about that. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, I want to move along here. I I really want to talk about the Sandpit Generals, but first we got to talk Lidsville. (laughs) um, My generation grew up on Sid and Marty Croft. Uh, It kind of explains my generation. Um, You'd said that you were on the fence about whether or not you're going to take that job. Um, one of the things that attracted you, I'm assuming it was Carolyn Ellis who was doing the bubbles yes. at that time. Totally yeah, understand that. <laughs> it's funny. I saw a picture of her this morning about that. She was putting photos up of her at that time. And I looked again, I go, I can see why I wanted to meet Caroline Ellis. She was about, she was as cute as could be. And it's true. I did. I didn't want to do the show. I, I turned it down several times. And then finally I turned down Marty several times. And then mm-hmm. Sid got on the phone. He goes, meet me for lunch. I want to talk to you. Uh, okay so he took me in his yellow corvette down to sunset we had a really cool lunch at this real cool place and i kind of like thought he was really cool man you know he's like you know big you know muscly guy and trim and big mustache and he convinced me that it would be only 11 weeks and you know and and i wasn't a second banana they wanted me all the time because i was like you know you're just you're just coming to me because somebody else turned it down he goes no that's not true because you were always our first choice so I stroked my ego a little bit. And then what really convinced me to do it was I went back to school and talked to the councils. And I told them, I said, you know, I did this movie in Brazil and it's, and it's never saw the light of day. And I was looking at being a movie star. Now I'm on Saturday morning. And they go, whoa, 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 slow down here. First of all, number one, you don't turn down work, number one. Number two, it's Saturday morning. No one's ever going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about it. I go, yeah, that's probably true. Most of my friends will be hung over and they'll still be asleep when this show's on. So, okay, I'll take the paycheck. And little did I know that number one, it would be a huge success and everybody would see it. But uh, that's how, that's basically how it happened between Caroline, hopefully to meet Caroline Ellis 
Sid convincing me I was the first choice and then Cal Sills uh, saying, you, you idiot, you never turned down a short thing. Well, I'm glad you did it. It's, it is a really fun show. And as a kid watching it, it was so absurd and bizarre and abstract and it really fed to a child's brain. They were really good at kind of capturing what yeah. kids would glom onto. Um, well, it was interesting. It was a very interesting show too. It was very technically advanced for its time. We did multiple cameras. We had voiceover people on the set. We had we had a director in another soundstage talking over the God mic. Mm -hmm. uh, Billy Hayes was wonderful. I knew several of the little people in the hats anyway from being my stand-ins and stunt doubles. So I wasn't nearly, uh, and it was only eleven weeks, so it yeah. wasn't bad, and it, and it was a good experience. And I'm glad I did it. And it was color chrome, correct? That was one Excuse of the me? first one of the first shot in color chrome. Yeah, cr uh, chroma key, chroma key, chroma key. Yeah, I've got everything written down here, and I'm yeah, no, I'm it, was, it was one of the first first shows in chroma key. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to ask Jerry Marin and Felix Felix Silo are on there, and um, you just mentioned uh, knowing them as being stand-ins and stuff. What are your memories of them? They seem like just happy, great guys, kind of like all of them. Billy Barty, the people that were working um just seemed happy to be able to get work well the crops kept a lot of them working number one mm -hmm. and uh, you know sharon who played raunchy rabbit was just a small person she wasn't actually a little person right and she uh was raunchy rabbit she was like my best buddy as was billy uh charles not so much but he was okay you know he, charles mm -hmm. was charles but um charles hated the makeup and i i told him quit whining you know i i had makeup on for two years it's only 11 weeks to be a baby and um but the but felix and jerry uh were good uh some of the other uh, little people you know would there were the hermines were there there's like a mm -hmm. family of six or eight of them yeah and they come from the east coast and they kind of huddled around together but but felix was probably my best friend on that set because you know i'd known him from the monsters i'd known him from uh, my favorite martian and, yeah and uh and he uh, he was funny, and you know he you know up to his passing recently, mm -hmm. we were we were really good buds. Um, yeah. So it was you know there was enough going on there to make it fun, and it, like I say, it, it was the Paramount lot. I was comfortable there. Um, remember the Bradys had started shooting that you know down the road a little mm -hmm. bit, so I would see them occasionally, and it was it was a good thing. And, and honestly, for the time and the eleven weeks, and getting and they sent me checks for four years, it was a good business move. Yeah. And I hope that didn't sound patronizing to little people. They seem so happy. Uh, I just met the actors just getting work. I know that was such a tough yeah, no, they were to there. be able to and get that. Joy Campbell, who was, who was Nursey, who's still a friend of mine, Joy, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Facebook friend with her. And I used to go up and visit her sister up in, you know, and we, we made some long-term lifelong friendships out of that show. Great. And I do have to ask about Charles Nelson Riley. He's such a fascinating character and a fascinating guy. Um, what were your memories of him aside from bitching about the makeup? <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't really that familiar with him. I knew that he was on, you know, he had like reoccurring roles on several series and he was always on Johnny Carson and, mm -hmm. you know, he was funny and, and he had a, you know, he, he was flamboyant, but he mm -hmm. was, you know, he was okay. He just hated the makeup. Yeah. You know, he hated the makeup. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> You're entitled to hate the makeup, but you knew that coming in. So right. about it. you know, it's not like someone pulled the makeup out after and surprised you with it. Right. You know, this was this was on when you decided to say yes. So, uh, you know, it was what it was. It was all it was good. It was it was a fun time. Well, you mentioned shooting a movie, The Sandpit Generals. You went to Brazil yep. to make that. It's a fascinating film. Um, you can find it on YouTube. 
it's not a great copy of it, but no. I've watched it. Go ahead and tell us a little bit that. What was that movie about? Well, it's, there's a book written in uh, by George Amato, a very big uh, Brazilian writer, you know, kind of like our Ernest Hemingway type of guy in South America. And he wrote a book uh, about the real life uh, bastard children that roam the streets and live together. And they're called the San Pit Generals on the Capitaes de Area down if you're uh, if you're speaking Portuguese. So this movie uh, was based about these kids who somewhat like the Lord of the Flies, but not quite on an island, but they, they lived out in the sand pits mm -hmm. and they banded together to survive. And they were all illegitimate kids of sailors and prostitutes. So the, the interesting thing about that movie was I actually wasn't even called up for the interview. I drove a friend to his interview who had the interview. And while I was in the waiting room, the call Bartlett, who was the director, producer and writer, Open the door and let Rick and Natalie, who's my friend, out, who I've driven there. And then he looked at me and he goes, Butch Patrick. And I go, yeah. He goes, have you got a minute? I go, yeah, sure. So Rick sat down and I went in to talk to Hall. Three days later, I'm in Brazil. And I basically got the part that Rick was up for. Or if not, he, who, if it wasn't Rick's part, it was someone else's part. But I'm pretty sure it was Rick's part because he said something about the, the character No Legs. And that was the character that I wound up getting. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, is my mom is obviously raising the kids in D.C. And because it was outside the country and uh, Hall was very much of a mover and a shaker and getting stuff done, I went down there with no teacher and no parent. And all I had to do was show up for work. And I had just turned 16. Yeah. So I got my license uh, August 2nd in the middle of September. I'm down in Brazil for three months starring in a movie. And my, my sister likes to say, I left as Richie Cunningham, but I came back as John Lennon. <laughs> and that was pretty, pretty accurate because while I was there, I did my job and I did it really well. But I, uh, I found myself uh, running a couple of small businesses out of the, <laughs> out of the bottom of the, 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 the cocktail lounge in the hotel. There was a lot of American sailors there. So I was doing a currency exchange for them because I was getting paid in, in, in Concos. <laughs> And they had American dollars and then they would invite me to go on the ship where I would then go on the ship and buy all the American cigarettes. And then I would come recover them with candy. When I'd come off the boat, it looked like I was buying candy. And then I, and then I found a guy, a cab driver who sold weed. So I supplied weed to the guys. And so anyway, I was, I was quite a little, I felt like Tom Cruise in risky business. I was only 16 and I had all this going on while doing the movie. Now, unfortunately, what happened was the movie was really pretty good for its period. You know, you got to understand this is 1969. Yeah. But Hall Bartlett and Rhonda Fleming had a horrible Hollywood divorce. And during the divorce, she got the rights to half of the the profits from the movie mm -hmm. and he was so angry that he shelved the movie so yeah. it never was released so there went the billboard on sunset boulevard there went the for your consideration butch patrick for an academy award for best supporting actor all that went flying out the window right about the time lidsville came onto my plate so i went from like movie star level academy <laughs> award nominee to Saturday morning, kid host. And then at, at the end of that, that's when I said, you know, I, I think I've had it with Hollywood. Let's just, you know, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I was in the last year of the, uh, the draft, the lottery. I had a very low number. I thought I was going to go to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I got my money. I went to the courts and petitioned to get my money out before I was 21 because the voting law had been changed in this three-year window. When I turned 19, the voting law was changed to 18. 
So I go, well, hey, I got two more years to wait for my money, or I go to court and convince them that I'm entitled to my money now, which they agreed. So they gave me the money, which then went flying out the window, like in, because I thought I was going to go die in Vietnam. So there was a very interesting little three-year window between Lindsville and San Pit Generals, the Vietnam War, Hollywood in general, Charlie Manson running around. It mm -hmm. just was a crazy time. Yeah. Well, that is a bummer because it is a fascinating movie. It's a, I, I find it engaging watch. I really did enjoy it. Your performance in it is great. Well, you know, another thing about it too is very interesting being in, out in, the, in another country. We had a French camera crew, which was interesting. We had Chinese caterers, we had Brazilian crew, and we had American actors mixed in with the Brazilian cast. It was a very little United Nations of sorts going on at the, at the time. And all I really had to do was show up for work, which I did. And then I met the Americans are living across the street, the American kids that were in the Pan American school, their, their parents were down there working for like oil companies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So they, luckily for me, they're the ones that kind of showed me around and I actually had some pals to hang around with. And uh, whether that was good or bad, I don't know. But, <laughs> but it, was definitely, it definitely was a, a life-altering a life situation. And that's probably where I decided that I enjoyed partying and and decided to maintain that lifestyle which was sort of counterproductive to uh my professional career sure sure you so you come back and you start working in music sugarloaf was your studio band yeah what happened with that real quickly um mm -hmm. because i know we got about another eight minutes right okay uh, however long you want okay. however well, i, well, I, I, I got about you. another eight minutes okay so what right. happened was is my mom's working for my agent, Mary Grady, in the office. Uh, a guy calls up. Bobby Sherman had been let go of Metro Media Records. So he was okay. their teeny bop, you know, bubblegum singer. They were looking for a replacement. So they called the studio looking for Mary, uh, the agency looking for Gary Grimes, who had just starred in the summer of yeah. 42. My mom convinced them that I would be a better choice because of Lidsville, that I had just, if you're looking for a teeny bop star, you, you know, my son is blah, blah, blah. So whatever happened they i went up and met with them and i said look number one i don't sing it doesn't matter you know we can fix that i go you can fix it yeah we can fix it i go okay and i guess and he goes how much money did you make last year and i told him he goes well we can make five times that doing this again they got my attention so i go okay i like sugarloaf i like green eyed lady um i like the guys that i was talking to and i go okay what the hell Mm -hmm. so we went into the studio and I took singing lessons and as I told them I don't sing and I can't sing and they agreed didn't matter <laughs> so we signed with Metro Media Records and for the next year I did American Bandstand I actually was uh I had the long interview the three-minute interview where bloggers and Messina had the 30-second interview so I basically headlined over them uh and then we went on the road to do uh publicity stuff but because I couldn't sing live it limited a lot to what I could do. So what happened was, is the A&R guy for Metro Media Records used me as his excuse to spend a ton of money. And we went on the road and spent a ton of money and had a great time. And I recommend everybody should live a rock star lifestyle for at least six months. I recommend it highly. It's a, it's a to-do bucket list thing, but make sure you can sing. And we, I like to tell people jokingly that I am so bad at this that I put a major corporation out of the record business because they pulled the plug on the, on the music division after me. <laughs> so I was the original Munster Manili. Way, <laughs> way ahead of Manili. Well, then in 1981 ahead. with Eddie and the Monsters, I 
went all in with it where I did write the lyrics, but again, mm -hmm. my guitar player sang and my bass, my producer, who was a really good bass player, played bass. So I faked the bass and I faked lip singing, but I did write the lyrics. So okay. I Munster Manili, I Munster again. <laughs> And that was, uh, you can hear, uh, if you grew up a Gen Xer, you heard Eddie and the Monsters on Dr. Yeah. Demento. So <laughs> that was actually a very cool thing because we, we did it. We, we, we shot the video in one night, uh, 3,500 bucks, uh, got it on MTV, unsigned. Mm -hmm. We were the first unsigned act ever to be on MTV, which was quite a feather in our cap. And we yeah. also helped a lot of other um, bands that didn't have record deals get some exposure because it used to be back in the day that, you know, it was a play for pay thing. And if you didn't have a record deal and you, if you didn't pay off some DJs to play your, your stuff and yeah. get it on the air, you were buried. Yeah. So I'd like to think we might've helped some people get some, uh, get, you know, help them up the ladder with their career. Well, I'm going to jump ahead since we're running low on time. I wanted to talk, I could talk for three hours about Phantom Tollbooth. If you're listening and haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah. Um, I've got some questions from fans. Uh, let's see. Of course, the Rob Zombie movie came up. Uh, everybody wants to know if you're going to have a cameo. I'll be in there somewhere. All right. Say. There we go. That came from Kelby Tinkin and Jerry Goble. Thanks, guys. Uh, Kim Disher, uh, she wanted to hear some of your memories in the days before the Monsters. I think we covered that pretty well. Mike Samsel wants to know if you still do have the Rucker Posey Dragula. Uh, sounds like you do. No, the Rucker oh. Posey Dragula I sold to my friend in Long Island. He then sold okay. it to another guy uh, on an emergency sale. But the reason I sold it is I'm building a more accurate one. I have a small block Ford 347 uh, the Ford stroker motor, a Jag stroker motor with more horsepower. So it's going to be more like the one that we used on the TV show. Not okay. the roll bar one that was used in the movie. Right. They I, just have, have the, I have the Rucker Posey coach still. Okay. Yeah, they'd taken the dome off because Fred Quinn couldn't really fit into Too it, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So the one I have is the back back to grandpa's version. Most accurate, most powerful one in the world. It's going to be, it's it's almost done, by the way. It's very, very oh, cool. sweet. So we'll do that. I'm sure that'll show up on your Facebook page and things. Well, I'm going to do exhibitions with it. I'm going to actually light them up and pull the wheels and, you know, do burnouts and stuff. So that's my awesome. plan. Um, and then I also just, I just reacquired and, and bought the Eddie uh, Harley that I designed about 15 years ago. Yeah. I'm going to pick that up in September. Uh, my club brother bought it. We designed it together and he, he basically never has room. He doesn't have room for it. So I'm going to uh, take the bike back. So there's a real good chance. I may be just touring with the Dragula and the Harley next year. Very cool. Awesome. Um, Munster Memories, the book you have out. Yeah. I actually bought it from you at Days of the Dead last week. That was great. Did, did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I'm about halfway through. It's a lot of, um, for our listeners, there's um, essays from you, essays from people talking about their memories of it, how it touched them. Really great little book. What started you on that? I just, it was about a year before the 50th anniversary back in 13. And um, I just, so many people had come up and, and shared how positive this, what the show had meant to them, especially the memories with a family member who had passed. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of these memories of their favorite grandma, their uncle who watched the show. There just resonated a lot of warmth. So I thought, you know, Monster Memories, that's an easy book. And I can, you know, I'll take their stories, tie it in with people that are still alive that were involved with the show firsthand. And then uh, some super collectors and just throw it in grandpa's cauldron <laughs> and uh, let it came and it came out, it, it, it came out 50 years to the day. 
September. I had to rush it through because I kind of got a late start on it. So what normally would have taken two years, we did in nine months. Wow. And um, I printed up a hundred of them, hard cover, very expensive book, big coffin table book. My sister gave that, gave me that term. Oh, it's a coffin table book. <laughs> so what happened was, is unfortunately I shipped them all up to Pat to be uh, signed. Mm-hmm. And on the way back, uh, four of the five boxes got lost. Oh, so, and they were like really expensive printing. And I had to then print up 80 more books immediately. That was my profit that went out the window. Mm. So now I'm in my own pocket and I print up 80 more books. And then I got Pat to sign 80 more books. And then those are the ones that we sold. And the paperback version is now uh, available. But that's how it came to me. It's a great book. And my own memories of it are very fond. Of course, I grew up watching reruns, but it always... Of course, I was a monster kid watching monsters act humanely. It was such a nice touchstone with them. We we had a, one of the interesting things about this show is I it's I never ceases to amaze me how many people were inspired to do something they're doing today from the show, whether it was acting or hot rodding or um, you know building this or chemistry from grandpa. I mean, there's just it's, it never ceases to amaze me what the show inspired in people today, which is kind of cool. It is. That's why one reason I'm doing this (laughs) move my life. Well, but thank you so much, Butch. I appreciate your time. No, it was good. I I enjoyed it. It was very nice. And uh, uh, as I like to tell people, we have a lot going on. I have a brand new YouTube channel, which will feature the Rob Zombie movie as my first segment. And it's called All Things Munster. That's singular. I was I was pondering all things monsters or all things monster. I think all things plural monster singular sounds best. All things monster. We'll start off with the Rob Zombie, then we'll do the George Barris, and then we'll get over to this and pretty much following me around the country doing what I want to do. That will be launched in two weeks. Until then, Coach to Coast is up. There's 18 yep. of those, which is like a Charles Corral show mm-hmm. spelled with a K. And if you go to monsters.com, Everything else about me is pretty much um, categorized and there are uh, different places that you can go to most everything from the store to the schedule to everything else about the Munsters from there. And uh, it's, uh, I've had that for almost 30 years. So Munsters.com is the key. Butch, thank you so much. This is You're welcome, my friend. Dream come no true. Problem. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You're You're welcome. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You guys, Butch Patrick. Petty freaking monster was just talking to me. Can you believe that? I could not. I throwing up a monster kid watching the monsters religiously. I just couldn't believe I was sitting and talking to that man. Fascinating dude. Great life. We didn't get into a, a bunch of detail about uh, his days uh, struggling with addiction. Uh, again, I would refer you to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast for that. It's, uh, he tells some great stories on there. I didn't feel that it was necessary to repeat them here. And uh, we talked about a bunch of different things, as you heard. Hope you enjoyed it. It's Halloween week, you guys. So get out there. Have fun. Be safe. Take care of your servers. Because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. Happy Halloween.